I was thinking about lessons that I've learned from fermentation that I think are applicable to social change work. Hello, and welcome to the Emergent Strategy Podcast, hosted by the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute. We are a collective of facilitators, mediators, trainers, and curious human beings interested in how we get in right relationship with change. Today, I will be guiding our interview. I'm Adrian. I'm the writer-in-residence at the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute. And just as a reminder, Emergent Strategy is the way we regenerate and reshape complex systems and patterns with relatively simple interactions. When you're listening to this, it's our fifth year of having emergent strategy out in the world, and it all feels like a big experiment, and we're still learning all the time, but five years feels like a significant chunk of that construct we created called time. So today's guest I'm very, very excited about. We have today Kasha Ho, who is part of the Embodiment Institute and a brand new mama bear and a master fermentator, fermentation (laughs) expert, (laughs) and also someone who I have known and admired for my most of my adult life. And I was just telling Kasha before we started that the way I think of Kasha is the best human. So, (laughs) you know, um, and I say that often, but I just feel like, you know, when they were creating Kasha, it was like, oh, these are all the things that make a person excellent. And that's you. So, that's so sweet, <laughs> it's so great to have you. Well, it's just true. And it's really exciting <laughs> to have you here with us, talking with us. And we always just want to start out by how are you right now today? Hmm, that's so nice. It's, it's really nice to be with you in virtual space and be in your proximity in real life space yes. as well. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Um, I'm doing good. I'm feeling cozy. I'm feeling good. I'm cuddled up with a blanket here, and I'm so grateful to be joining you um, on this podcast. So, Kasha, when we sit and come up with, like, who do we want to invite to talk to, we think in terms of the emergent strategy we see in you, and we see you as someone who is highly adaptive, always creating more possibilities, and particularly the art of fermentation, which is one that like every time I'm in your home, I'm just amazed at how many different fermentation projects you have, you know, bubbling. And (laughs) there's also so much about (laughs) nonlinearity and iteration and just like following the rhythms of land and following the rhythms of, of the natural world. So we see you as like really an embodied, an embodied emergent strategist. And we always want to not push that on people, but it's like, do you accept that premise or does that resonate for you? I really appreciate that reflection. That's that's beautiful. And I definitely resonate with that. Awesome. So we all come into this world as tiny little perfect babies, and then we get shaped and shaped and shaped, and we could be shaped in so many ways. And so we're starting to just ask everyone and get really curious, what would you say is your political lineage? Like kind of what shaped how you live your political life now? Hmm. Mm, great question. Oh, I think that sitting with that 
reflection you just offered me about how you see me and kind of my work in the world, I really trace a lot of that back to my upbringing in Hawaii. And I would say I'm going to kind of broadly define political lineage here to include like the land and the ocean and the ecosystems and the political movement, Native Hawaiian sovereignty movement and others in Hawaii that have shaped me and kind of helped me to understand myself as an entity in the world and uh, an actor in the systems around me. So I would definitely locate myself there. Um, My family is, I think I'm the fourth generation to be born in Hawaii, but my family comes from Okinawa and China. They came over to work the sugarcane and pineapple plantations. Um, And then my mom's side of the family is Scotch-Irish. And I have, uh, I think I would say that politically, I really was born through the cultural work of uh, the Native Hawaiian um, resurgence, cultural resurgence that happened uh, alongside the American Indian movement and the Black Power movement and the the lineage of those movements that continue today um, to, uh, to shape Hawaii and t- that I really um, came to understand um, the political forces that shaped that that place and those people and also gave me a a real felt sense of both myself as part of the system and a sort of embodied way of being in relationship with the land there through a cultural practice, um, through spiritual ceremony, um, and through political activism. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really a ferocious struggle, you know, so it's such a blessing to be like, oh yeah, that's home base, (laughs) you know, see how fierce we can get in other places. And from that starting point, if you were to intentionally name, like, what are you practicing today? What Mm. are the practices that construct your life? Mm Hmm. Oh man, so many. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so many things I'm in practice with. We, um, as you know, we live now in North Carolina um, on yeah. a bit of land here that we are constantly, every day, learning about being in relationship with and stewarding and impacting and being impacted by. Um, so I've been a lot of practices around that, around just um, caretaking the land, learning to build back the soil, learning to be in right relationship with the animals around yeah, us. So many. <laughs> <laughs> Just like coping with the multitudes of cycles of life and death that are part of living close to the land. And as you mentioned, I'm always in a practice of fermentation and practicing with the microbes that are in our soil and in our food and in our bodies. And that's really one of the places I like to go deep and geek out about. Um, So I'm excited to talk to you about the microbiome and gut health and yeah, me too. Intergenerational <laughs> things, <laughs> all the stuff. So yeah, we could definitely spend all the time there. Well, <laughs> <laughs> and I want to. I you know I've been. I I suspect that there's a lot for us to learn mm-hmm. about how we be as humans and our relationship with the rest of the world 
through this, you know, natural technology of microbiomes. So maybe let's just dive in a little bit. What piqued your interest about fermentation initially? And maybe what do you think you've learned from the process of being a fermenter? I think what, you know what, actually what piqued my interest in fermentation initially was a book I read written by Sandor Katz, who's kind of acknowledged as the sort of like father figure of the modern fermentation revival in the U.S. He is a former ACT UP activist. He's been living with HIV for a number of decades. And he literally wrote the book on fermentation that kind of like gave people permission to start practicing and experimenting in their kitchens around fermentation again in a way that we'd um, most of us lost that kind of lineage of um, cultural practice over time. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's like a lot of fear in, in the modern food system around food safety. I can talk more about that, but um, I think it's it's really prevented people for decades and maybe longer from really feeling confident about fermenting foods at home for fear of making ourselves and our families sick, which is actually not an accurate concern around fermentation. There's never been a reported foodborne illness related to fermentation in the U.S. or any of the countries that share that kind of information with the U.S. So it's um, sort of been, I think, lumped in because it's similar in appearance to the canning process, which is really actually um, a very controlled you know, you need very sterile procedures in the canning process to produce something that's going to be safe from things like botulism, which could actually make you very sick. But But we don't have to be out here worrying about killing. Exactly. It's actually the exact opposite. It's like the mirror opposite process from canning, whereas canning is like you need to create this sterile vacuum that nothing can grow in. Fermentation is actually you are creating an environment in which bacteria can thrive such that if you have a thriving and diverse ecosystem of bacteria, none of those kind of pathogenic or bad actors can grow out of control. So even if they were present there, you're creating a diverse and thriving community that will keep Uh them in check. So it's like the sort of mirror opposite process from canning. It's literally the opposite. But like, if you were just on a 101 level, like what is the difference between a good and a bad bacteria? Well, you know, I think it's, this is maybe my philosophy about life, but it's really all about relationship. It's like, yeah, what, yeah. what is the, what does me being in relationship with this particular bacteria do at this particular time yeah. in this particular place? And so bacteria get a really bad rap all antibacteria here (laughs) and antibacterial soaps and, you know, like all of those things that are trying to create this sterile environment, right? Because we're afraid of bacteria. But really the truth is there's 30 million different types of bacteria out in the world. And of those 30 million, only 70 of them are considered pathogenic to humans, meaning that they could harm you or make you sick. So if you just think about like, we really paint the whole picture of bacteria as bad or, you know, somehow going to harm us. But it's really very few of those um, bacteria that can potentially make us sick. And we spend all of our time focusing on those ones, which then causes us to kind of approach bacteria as a whole with this uh, war on bacteria kind of approach. And we miss out on all of the the good bacteria, ones that we have like a friendly relationship with. And 
the truth is that we are ourselves. This is something that like really piqued my interest in fermentation. Get back to your question. I kind of no, <laughs> let off okay. on, on a path. <laughs> I'm like, yes. <laughs> well, one of the things that piqued my interest about fermentation was really just learning about microbes and learning that my body itself is made up of more microbes than it is human cells that have like human DNA. I'm maybe up to 10 times as many microbial cells and a hundred times as many DNA sequences, genes, like my microbial genome is a hundred times bigger than my human DNA genome. And it's totally wild. I had no idea. (laughs) And that made me think of myself as an ecosystem. I was like, I'm not an individual person, like just, you know, walled off from the world. I am this like living, breathing, cycling ecosystem of different kinds of creatures that happen to be inhabiting this body for this period of time. And that made me totally geek out. Yeah. (laughs) And And microbes are super cool. They're like way more advanced than us. Um, they are able to, you know, unlike us, we have the same sort of DNA throughout our lifetimes. You know, we have this 23 sets of chromosomes. We're born with them. We die with them. We pass them on to our kids, whatever. But microbes have this really like fluid ability with genes to like take up genes from their environment, use them for a time, like a tool, put them back, like interchange them. And so they're constantly evolving within their own lifetimes in a way that we're not even capable of doing in these bodies. And they they make a, a literal connection between our bodies and the rest of our environment. So the fact that our guts are home to, our guts are actually home to more bacteria than there are stars in the universe. And wow. Those bacteria create a literal linkage between our guts, our like internal environment and our external environment so that we're able to sync them up through the meals that we eat every day. We're able to actually like create those connections between our internal Mm. bodies and our external sort of body and system. And I think that's so, so incredible. Cool. <laughs> like it just makes eating a totally different thing too. <laughs> like it yeah. does. It really does. And it it has actually literally made eating a different thing for me because I'm learning about what foods actually feed the the microbes that are living in your gut. Yeah. Like it's really important to eat really fibrous foods yeah. because those things don't get digested by our um, sort of upper digestive tract yeah. and they make it all the way down to like the lower levels where a lot of the um, gut bacteria are living. And they're actually, it's actually food. The fiber is food for those microbes. Uh-huh. And if you don't give them enough fiber, the, the other thing that is fiber is the lining of your gut. And so they'll actually start eating your gut lining if you mm. don't feed them enough fiber. And that's where you end up having leaky gut issues, yep. Crohn's disease, things like that is because you're yeah. not feeding your microbes enough um, fiber. And they're <laughs> so, protesting. Yeah, they're, like, they're like, well, we'll we figured out how else to survive. So.
if you were to say like a vision, a fermentation vision is the idea that like everyone should be engaged in their own personal processes of fermentation and, and sort of understanding their own microbial journey? Or is it like we need to change the food system towards more fermentation or both and all the above, beyond? Great question. All of the above. Um, <laughs> definitely. Um, I'll start, let me start with the food system because I actually think that's ultimately like yeah. that's a, the major goal. I do really enjoy and promote everyone being in their own fermentation practice as well. Yeah. I, I think ultimately that learning about the internal microbiome and the external microbiome really calls us to a full revolution of our modern food system because there's like, it should be a sort of unbroken line between my mouth and that reaches all the way back through the the chains of the food system back to the soil microbes in the soil. And our current food system, the way that we have set it up, has really like damaged those connections that we have between our gut and the environment all along the way. So that the, the soil from the farms that grow our food have been depleted yeah. using chemical fertilizers and pesticides over years and years. The hands that are picking those foods are often from people who are mistreated in yep. their work and are not living in healthy, thriving, loving conditions that allow them to have healthy microbiomes, even on their hands that are being passed then to those who pack and ship and the people who cut and clean and, you know, prepare our food all along the way. There's actually in in the, the U.S. food system, there's a literal, it's called a kill step if you're producing food for purchase where you wow. have to um, in yeah. the food production model for food safety reasons, literally kill off all of the microbes that are living in your food. So you have to like superheat it or bleach it, something that's going to kill off all of the microbes, which then severs your microbial connection back to the earth. And unfortunately, that's necessary because our food is coming from these factory farms where like the pigs are so mistreated that they have diseases that could then pass through their fecal matter onto your vegetables or whatever it is that you're eating. So you do have to sterilize your food because all along the way, the whole system is broken and messed up. People and animals and plants and soil are mistreated all along the way. Way. So I think that it really does yeah. call us to not just like, not just eat organic and, you know, try to take care of our own bodies and our families, yeah. but it really calls us to um, be active in reshaping the way that our food mm. system operate. And, and I do think that personal practice is a part of that too. So, so for us learning to grow our own food, being in relationship with the soil here so that I can start to understand how the soil microbes interact with the roots of our plants, which increases the nutrient uptake of the plants and just really understand what's involved in like the labor and love and conditions of, you know, all of the things that happen when you're trying to grow food so that I can appreciate like, oh, it makes sense why this costs so much, <laughs> you know, why there's so much. That's right. It's like the, the act also of gardening is kind of an act of science as well. You know, it's just like a scientific experiment too. Yes. Mm-hmm. It is. And appreciation, just like really understanding what goes into 
bringing those foods to our body and and building those relationships with the with the microbes and the soil and the plants and the animals, all of those things along the way. And just at this point, listeners, I'm sure you're thinking what I think whenever I hear Kasha talk about these things, which is like, we need this information from you. Like, (laughs) you should write a book about this. That's what I I think. Um, And so if you think the same thing, listeners, just put the pressure on Kasha (laughs) in whatever way feels appropriate for you, spiritually, energetically, through social media. (laughs) But the question I have is, so you moved from the ecosystem of Hawaii where you grew up and were in relationship to the land, you know, there Mm -hmm. to North Carolina, which is such a different environment. What feels different in terms of what you're learning about being in really, you know, like what is the land teaching you that feels really different Mm. and does it impact your fermentation practice? Mm. You know, like, is it different? Yeah. Yeah. It is very different. Everything is different. (laughs) here. Definitely. Definitely. (laughs) And I'm learning so much and I'm realizing that it's going to be a learning process for many years for me to to, to know and be known by this place in a way even slightly similar to the way that I know and am known by (laughs) the ecosystem in Hawaii. For one thing, seasons. Seasons are so different here. I mean, we have seasons in Hawaii, but they're Subtle. You know, it's like the waves are bigger, the rain is heavier, yes. but it's not like, oh, everything yeah. dies yeah. <laughs> for several months. Um, <laughs> You're like, eat that. And so, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's, I'm really appreciating the seasonal cycles and what that's sort of teaching me to personally about rest and regeneration. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's nice to have a break from that um, for a few months and to sort of like plan, okay, what did we learn over this last growing season? What are we going to implement coming up to, to be at a a little more peaceful relationship with the deer for a few months? Mm <laughs> who are constantly coming to eat all of our <laughs> produce. Yeah. So yeah, I'm learning a lot about seasons and seasonality and just the importance of, of downtime, I think is really something that I've been cherishing. I love that. I'm working, one of the short stories I'm working on is about a, um, a group of people who are like, we're going to opt out of the relationship of time and we're going to like the, the human relationship of time mm, and we're going to like do it more like yes. the bears do whatever. And it's all about like, what does it mean to really embrace hibernation, <laughs> which is definitely written from my longing and exhaustion right now that I'm like, what if we really, really hibernated y'all? Like, I think that would be so fun. Yes. I love this. So one other question I have here is if, if someone's listening to this and they're like, okay, you got me. Like, I'm, I'm curious. I'm interested. I, I want to start a fermentation experiment. Is there like a first place that you're like, try this, you know, like this is kind of the, in, you know, the gateway drug to fermentation? <laughs> I would say in terms of a sort of easy first step, I would offer two options. One is maybe sauerkraut or some kind of pickled vegetable. Those are a pretty easy ferment. If you like sauerkraut, that's a really fun one to start with because you don't need anything except cabbage and salt. And it's super easy. You really just cut up the cabbage, add some salt, (laughs) 
let it sit there. It, it will release enough liquid that you didn't even have to add liquid to it. You just want to make sure that it's submerged under the liquid for at least a week, maybe up to three weeks, depending on your conditions, which is a nod back to your original question about how this place has changed my fermentation practices. I really can't offer an exact number of days or something that you should ferment something because it all depends on your conditions, how warm it is in your kitchen or wherever you're fermenting, what else you have on the counter, (laughs) things like that. So all of those things, yep, relate to each other and your own preferences, your own tastes. I like to tell people to taste the ferment to decide if it's done or not, because oftentimes people think, oh, the longer I leave it fermenting, the more microbial benefit it will have, sort of like the, the more bacteria, good bacteria it'll have. But that's not actually the case. It's like, if you look at a graph of what's happening with the microbes in your bacteria, certain ones will start out high and then they'll kind of peter off and another one will kind of replace it and come up higher. And that's where I like to say your body, like training yourself to trust your senses again, to like literally listen to your gut. I might like my sauerkraut at eight days, you might like yours at 12. And I think my theory is that's because your gut is craving a different kind of microbe than my gut is craving. Like there's actually something that that food is giving your body that your body is craving and telling you because you like the taste that that's the time to eat it. So I like to to trust your gut around (laughs) that too. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I mean, it kind of it feels like in the cycle, like what the microbes are up to, the human is the is like a final puzzle piece. You know, it's like, oh, the final piece of it is actually you, the distinction of you. Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. I like that. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, sauerkraut. In there. So, so sauerkraut is one. Um, kombucha, I would say, is the other one. If you're somebody who likes to drink kombucha anyway and you're like buying it from Whole Foods, it's six bucks a pop. Um, <laughs> it's, call me out, Kaja. <laughs> <laughs> It's super easy and super cheap to make at home. So it's basically you're brewing a sweet tea once every 10 days or something. And that's it. And you're leaving it on the counter. That's it? So that's it. If you can brew sweet tea, you can make kombucha. I'm shocked. For free at home, basically. Okay. That's it. Because I literally (laughs) drink so much kombucha. And I've been trying to find, you know, flavors that I really like that are not with tons of added sugar, yes. you know? So this is cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Okay. Yep. Thank you. Great. I can give you a SCOBY. Okay, I'm on to Start it. brewing at home. Just wait, world. <laughs> Just when yeah. I start making kombucha, <laughs> like it's on. I really have a dream of a really cool like lavender kombucha. Okay, so. Oh, it can happen. Yeah, right? Well, yes. I love all this. So kombucha, sauerkraut, yeah. And if you gut. want a guide, yeah. I know I started talking about Sander Katz and then I went off on a different tangent. So I yeah, never I fully finished that thought. But his book, Wild Fermentation, is the book that first got me jazzed about fermenting. It's really kind of giving you permission to experiment at home. He gives you sort of guidelines, but not exact recipes. So if you're someone who likes an exact recipe, that's maybe not your cookbook for fermentation. Maybe you're a yes. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> and there are other fermentation cookbooks that will give you like two teaspoons of salt, okay. to one cup of water. But Sandra Katz is kind of like, oh, this is how I do it. Try it at home. Let me know how it goes. But he, his book really inspired me because the last chapter of that book is about fermentation and social change. And he talks about, he actually talks about the wildfires at the time that were happening around where the area where he lived and how he was kind of comparing fire as a, a, a force of change to fermentation as a force of change and how fermentation is this sort of like often unseen, like under the surface bubbling thing that's happening all of the time. And you might not be able to see it in the same way that fire is so apparent to our eye, but it's actually like radically transforming everything that it's touching and from the inside out. So I really liked that. And I think there's a lot of sort of lessons from fermentation that I also draw to social movement, which is really fun. I'm like, oh, these systems are like our social systems. It's fractals. We've come so far away from trusting ourselves as nature and trusting the nature around us. And I think for everyone, it's like, oh, there's going to be different things that allow you to find your way back, you know? And so, so much of this podcast is really Mm -hmm. being like, here's um, um, as many ways (laughs) as we can find to start to trust again, you know? Yes. I so appreciate that. You know, and it's like, like I've just been in this, you know, on a personal level, my gut, like at the beginning of the year, I I was told like, you have this, 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 and this all happening in your gut. Like it was like a a bad party, (laughs) you know, (laughs) happening in there. And at the time, the response was like, okay, we're going to put you on antibiotics. Mm, Um, Yes. And basically, I was so sad because I felt like, oh, I know that this is not what I want to do for my gut, but I don't know enough to do another method, right? You know, so that was part of my commitment this year was like to learn enough that I I wouldn't need to do antibiotics again unless it was like an extreme, extreme situation. And so, yeah, now I'm like, you know, you get that sense of ah, ah, perfection. You know, it's like I can <laughs> I can clean the house of my gut and I can like develop beautiful yes. things in here. So. Absolutely. I really appreciate you bringing in antibiotics too, because I think that's one of the main reasons that we, like in, if you sort of look at populations of people, uh, the more acculturated you become in Western society, the less diverse your microbiome is. Um, and, and we end up passing that down sort of intergenerationally. Mm. But I feel like antibiotics is a big reason for that. We're, we're prescribed antibiotics, I think, way more than we actually like genuinely need them. And they're so often they're, you know, they're not targeting. They're not like a sniper targeting the thing that is really bothering you. They're like a nuclear bomb just 
killing off everything in your gut. And then you're left with this vacuum that could, uh, you know, have, have more things that aren't in healthy relationship with your body rise up and bloom in there too. So yeah, I think it's, the antibiotics is, are definitely necessary and life-saving, but I think the amount that we use them both in medical practice and in the food system is part of what's creating a pretty unbalanced uh, microbiome within our own bodies. Yeah, it was, I, you know, my, my, as soon as I was done with the course, I was just like, okay, I'm having <laughs> fermented things at every single meal um, and, you know, taking probiotics and drinking my kombucha and all of it and learning about it even as a flavor palette, like as a, a, a way of, it's like, it's almost even a taste. We're not tuned into mm-hmm. enjoying, or at least for me, I was like, oh, I, I wasn't tuned into this as like a flavor palette that I would enjoy. And it's like, I've been training my mouth, you know, training my taste buds to be like, oh yeah, this is actually really good. And how do I like, how do I help my brain and my mouth align with like, this is good for my body, you know? So let's, let, let's enjoy the taste. (laughs) So yeah. Totally, totally. Yeah, I know that that practice that you're talking about. I feel like that around uh, my intake of fiber too. It's like since I learned how important fiber is for the microbiome, I'm like, okay, so you're saying instead of white rice, <laughs> I should be eating something like bulgur or some of those like more ancient yeah. greens that are like maybe not what <laughs> I initially think I'm craving, but maybe it is something that is going to help my microbiome. The other thing I was thinking while you were talking is that while there are like certain fermented foods that I think like are the poster children of ferments and what we think of as that taste, I have to say that like a lot of the stuff that we enjoy eating anyway is fermented too. Cheese, chocolate, wine, like yogurt, like all of those things are also fermented. Yep. Tofu, tempeh, all of those things, vinegar. Yeah, a lot. A lot of our food is actually fermented. Let me vinegar Mm -hmm. chocolate. Okay, I'm just, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm holding my head high now as a, I've been eating fermented. That's right. My life. I just didn't even know that. That's great. (laughs) So, when you are not fermenting the world and um, gardening and food processing, you're also involved with the Embodiment Institute, which started last year, uh-huh, right? Like formally. Yep. Tell us about the Embodiment Institute and and how you found your, your role inside of it. Uh, yeah. So my partner, Prentice Hempel, and I um, started up the Embodiment Institute as an official entity, yeah, just about a year ago now. And it's really an experiment in learning about embodiment for Mm -hmm. our our own selves, for the sake of changing our lives, the systems that we live in, the social structures that we're in. We talk about being, the term is transitional characters, but basically like becoming people who within our lifetimes can shift the dynamics in the systems that we're part of. That term comes from um, family therapy. So, you know, the, the family systems that we're part of, the work organizational systems that we're part of, the community systems that we're a part of, that doing our own work around healing trauma, around being um, embodied in ourselves and in those systems um, is able to really change what's possible for them in the future. Mm -hmm. 
Um, we do trainings around embodiment. Um, we've focused our work um, primarily uh, with uh, Black embodiment basics and um, embodiment basics for um, multiracial audiences throughout last year. We are doing a number of experiments <laughs> coming up. And um, my work within it is really about um, reminding us that being embodied um, is a practice not only of being um, sensing, feeling bodies um, within our physical bodies, but that we are then bodies within um, systems, ecosystems um, as well. And so uh, the work is not just about, um, though that is pretty extraordinary work. <laughs> learning <laughs> to listen to and be conscious of and be fully present in our own bodies and what becomes possible through that, but also to be conscious and intentional bodies within the systems that we're a part of, which includes the natural world. So part of that work is um, eventually being embedded um, in land practice here as well um, and incorporating um, some of these practices around building up the soil, fermenting our foods, feeding ourselves, sharing with other people, reconnecting to those ancestral and cultural practices that a lot of us have lost touch with. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's part of what I'm excited about bringing to the Embodiment Institute. So exciting. I'm really grateful that the Embodiment Institute exists. You know, I feel like the you know, I keep, I keep laughing about this because I'm like, there's just some work that feels urgent, urgent, even though it's about non-urgency, right? Like, even though it's about like, we need to get back into a slower, more intentional relationship with the world around us and mm, in, yes. into the truth of it. You know, I keep having these thoughts where I'm like, we don't need to argue about this with anyone. Like, there's nothing to argue. Like, this is true. <laughs> the, mm -hmm. the earth is talking to us and these systems are holding yep. us and we're interconnected at all times. We're never alone. We're not even individuals. <laughs> so it just is. It's what it is. So I'm really grateful that yeah, that y'all exist. And is it something that people can tune into from all over? Like, what does it look like to launch an institute during a pandemic? <laughs> you know, like, is it, yes, you know, yes. Is it the idea that people can be in one place or is it virtual or, yeah. Yeah, right now we're doing a lot of our work virtually and by necessity because of the pandemic. A lot of our trainings and courses have been virtual, which means you can tune in from anywhere. So that's the beautiful part of it. We've had um, relationships built you know, across the globe, learning, learning from people from everywhere. Um, and the accessibility of being virtual is just wonderful and can't be beat. And we are looking forward to a time where we get to be embodied physically together in place as well. So we have a couple of um, targeted retreat spaces happening in the next year. Um, hopefully that we'll be able to be in person and we'll definitely be building up to being more and more in person as that becomes possible. So cool. Okay. Well, good luck with it. Um, and thank you for existing. <laughs> so <laughs> then when you're not fermenting things, farming, gardening, and running, uh, co-running the Embodiment Institute, you are a new parent and you're a Virgo parent. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I, so the question I wrote out is like, is Virgo parenting the best kind? Um, but <laughs> I mostly just want to ask you about, you know, anything you want to share about what parenting is teaching mm. you about adaptation, about the rest of the work, you know, does it shift the lens 
through which you see the work mm-hmm. you're doing? Great question. Of course, Virgo parenting is the best parenting, but yeah. It is, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is changing my my perspective for sure. I am a new parent. I think I've been a parent for a little over two months now. And, oh, I'm learning so much. You know, this morning I was, this is a brand new thought that hasn't been fully (laughs) digested or shared out with the world. So I'm not sure how much it's going to make sense, but I was, I woke up or really my child woke up and I was feeding her (laughs) and I was thinking about, it made me think about um, the, in Hawaiian, the word for land is aina, and literally it translates to that which feeds us. So I was sort of sitting there breastfeeding, laying there breastfeeding, thinking about feeding her. And I was thinking like, oh, I am her first land, you know, and like she grew inside me from this like primordial darkness you know, tiny cells finding each other and like emerged into this place. And I'm still feeding her literally from my body (laughs) and sustaining her in that way. I'm learning about, I'm learning about the lessons of being in relationship to land from the other side a little bit. And like, what is it like to be the land and to offer love and sustenance um, in that way to a human? (laughs) So the lessons are still new, but I'm pretty excited about it to sort of have that perspective from both sides about being in relationship with land. That's so beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. I also feel like, you know, there's something about the way that I'm witnessing you, you know, just from from over yonder, (laughs) where, you know, I wonder about this too, for people who get the option to parent when they're older, when it's like, you're not like in the first throes of figuring out adulthood, you know, but it also seems like there's something where parenting can be a, a grounding, you know, it's like part of being like, Oh, I yes. need to deepen mm-hmm. in my connection to home and land and place so that I can be solid enough for mm-hmm. this little being, you know? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really true for me. I didn't feel ready to be a parent until very recently. And now it just feels like, oh, yes, this is what I've been working towards. <laughs> you know, my whole life I've been learning these lessons. I've been um, reshaping my practices so that I would be ready to be in this place where it all makes sense. And I can, I mean, having her in our lives, I'm like, oh, you're really teaching me like this is what's important. <laughs> ah, beautiful. 
fuck all that other shit. You know, like all of that noise is not important. This is what's important. And I feel thankfully like pretty aligned with the way that I live my life and and the values that we've chosen to feed and nurture so that I'm like, okay, yeah, we're ready to to take on that responsibility. So yeah, I'm pro parenting later in life. (laughs) Yeah. That <laughs> no, like, I mean, it's great. Yeah. You know, I, it's, it's so interesting because I often feel like most of the people in my life who parented earlier in life, it wasn't necessarily like the plan, but, yes. you know, and and they have parented valiantly, but I can see that difference where I'm like, oh, it makes a difference if you've gone through Saturn Returns. <laughs> like it makes right. a difference if you're financially stable. It makes a difference if you, you know, yeah, if you're, if you're like, okay, I know where I want to be in this you know, this will be where we are <laughs> for a little bit. Yep, absolutely. And definitely there are challenges as well. But oh, um, yeah. well, I feel like, like the body is it. like, I'm deteriorating already. <laughs> but, yep. um, <laughs> you know, run as long as you can. <laughs> so um, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I can't even imagine chasing a baby. <laughs> but you know, we'll see. So question for you, what feels like it's emerging for you? What feels like the next experiment on your horizon? Something that I haven't uh, really engaged with so far in my life is around really bringing parenting and families into the work that I do and having it be like, that's just part of what we do. We're not expected to be individuals like doing the work, you know, nine to five or whatever, but we're actually bringing it into family practice and that it's part of what we're teaching and transferring to the next generation. It's part of seeing through their eyes and like learning from their perspective in a way that enriches the work as well. So I'm I'm not even sure what that will look like yet, but I'm excited about having that lens in our work of like, how does this become family practice? And what does that family practice teach us that we can bring back um, and iterate on to both in the embodiment work and um, it actually in like the fermentation work too. This morning I was reading about um, breast milk and um, how we transfer microbiome to the next generation, both through vaginal delivery. That's sort of like the first bacteria that baby gets exposed to and becomes the sort of like foundational bacteria that sets your microbiome for life. But Uh also through breast milk, you're, you're getting bacteria literally through breast milk. But I was also reading this morning, which I thought was so interesting. And I didn't know that breast milk is part, you know, fat, protein, lactose, but also this thing called human milk oligosaccharides, which is a complex carbohydrate. It's like the sweetness. That's the reason breast milk is sweet. And it's of those things, it's like the third ingredient in breast milk. (laughs) It's like fat, lactose, human milk oligosaccharides. And those human milk oligosaccharides, we can't actually digest as humans like it's not for you, it's for your bacteria in your gut. And you're feeding those bacteria that they're the bacteria that actually end up helping you digest plant proteins later in life. So my body is training her body. Like at some point you're going to want to eat plants and I'm going to keep those bacteria alive until you start eating plants so that you have bacteria in your gut that allows you to digest those things that you're going to eat somewhere (laughs) down the road. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. 
I that's thought astounding. So. Like, there's just so much care yes. in the design of us. It <laughs> like, really it's is. pretty outstanding. Mm. So you're you're bringing all that together and you're figuring out that breast milk is magic in a very particular way. Yeah. So is it – okay. Actually, I'm going to make you say – I'm going to make <laughs> you write this down into the book because I'm just like, wait. Now I have, I have so many – you I, I know, will. like I literally feel like I could talk to you for three yes. hours more just on yeah, – Yeah, definitely. I could. Gut. And we should later. But for the people here are listening, yeah. <laughs> the last question that we are asking people is – what feels like the most resonant question for you right now? Like what's a question that is shaping or guiding your life? Here's another thing I was thinking about this morning. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about, bear with me. I'm going to kind of like (laughs) do a few loops around this question. I love the loops. Your loops are great loops. I was thinking about lessons that I've learned from fermentation that I think are applicable to social change work. And one of them is, you know, when you make yogurt, you basically take milk, heat it up, add a starter culture to it, and then let it sort of be warm for about eight hours, and that becomes yogurt. In the starter culture, you can just use yogurt from the store. Like you can get an unflavored yogurt, use a couple teaspoons of that, and that can be your starter culture. Or you can get like heirloom yogurt starter culture that's, you know, been passed on for generations and is like an, a, a thing that people have taken care of for a long period of time. If you use starter culture from the store, um, it will work just like heirloom starter culture too, but only about two or three times. Like you can use that store yogurt, make your yogurt, use a spoonful of your yogurt, make another yogurt, Maybe you can use a spoonful of that yogurt to get yogurt one more time, but eventually it will no longer work. And that's because store-bought yogurt, they've um, isolated certain strains of bacteria that they say, okay, these are the bacteria that make yogurt taste like yogurt. It's lactobacillus and bifidobacteria usually. And those do make yogurt, but they don't have, um, and this is where my sort of loops (laughs) Loops come in. Um, I think we have a very reductionist, sort of isolationist way of thinking about things, you know, in our culture where it's like, well, if I isolate this thing and like look at it under a microscope in a lab, apart from everything else, then I will understand everything about this thing. But what we miss in that is its relationship to everything else. Like, what are the friends that it grew up playing with? Like, how are they helping each other um, in community? And we miss out on all of those relationships when we isolate the thing and only look at the thing. And so with the heirloom starter cultures, you're taking the whole village and you're like, I don't know what all of these people have to do with each other, but the whole village comes along and that village has been sustaining as a a literal culture, in this case, a starter culture for generations. (laughs) And there's something about the relationships in that village that work and that allow them to keep thriving, keep reproducing. You can use that forever and ever and ever. It will forever make yogurt down the road. It won't ever die off. So there's something there, I think, about our relationships with each other, like how we keep each other going, how we become a thriving community that like perpetuates and innovates and 
changes over time in relationship to our conditions. And that's the question that I feel like I'm in. It's a big question, but it's like, how do I become a part of and sustain and relate to and feed that kind of community that can sustain and thrive and change over generations and generations and generations? That's the question that I'm in. This podcast is produced by Natalie Parrott. Music for the Emergent Strategy Podcast is provided by Hooray for the Riff Raff and their album Life on Earth. To support the ongoing work of ESII, make a donation at www.alliedmedia.org forward slash ESII.